Welcome to episode 173 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and I am Laurent Bannock, the host. Now, today I just had a, a great conversation with Dr. Mark Harries, who has been on this podcast before, where we talked about fuel for the work required, carbohydrate metabolism and exercise being a sort of a mainstay of his area of research interests. Also, Mark is one of our senior tutors here at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. So I'm particularly excited to share Mark's knowledge with you on this really interesting and important topic. So recently, Mark and his team published a paper that essentially was looking at the comparable rates of exogenous carbohydrate oxidation and factors like the impact that that will have on endurance exercise, particularly cycling, GI discomfort, uh, gastrointestinal discomfort, of course, from exogenous sources, exogenous obviously being external supplemental sources, typically like a drink, a gel, or a jelly. And these are these are all strategies that we've had around, of course, for a while. You'll see a lot of endurance athletes, cyclists, runners in particular, using things like like gels. They're not the only exogenous source of, of carbohydrate. You can get these drinks or, or foodstuffs in various formats, but they haven't necessarily been researched using things like isotope tracers and blood work and and so on, which Mark and his team have done in this particular study. So it's particularly interesting to have a sort of a, a really good chat about what they found in their research and the wider body of knowledge, as it were, on this whole topic of supplemental carbohydrate intake, particularly from exogenous sources and the relevance that that actually has on things like endurance exercise performance. We talk about applicability to various levels of, of exercise from amateur elite to elite, of course. Translating the evidence into real-world practice can be complicated, so we have a, a chat about that. And it's just really fascinating to hear about how these nutritional strategies can play a role in enhancing performance in general. We do, of course, talk about things like multiple transporter carbohydrates and the various needs and preferences of different kinds of athletes from liquid or solid form. So anyway, I know you're going to love this chat, particularly if you're a practitioner or a researcher in this area and, of course, uh, an athlete looking to use things like carbohydrate gels and, and drinks and, and so on. Before you get to listen to the discussion with Dr. Mark Harris, please check out our website at www.theiopn.com where you can find access to previous podcasts, the notes for this particular podcast and links to the paper in question and other relevant papers and podcasts and so on. I'll put it all there. Also, please check out our advanced 100% online diploma in performance nutrition. There is no other program like it. It's entirely a unique science to practice focused program at the advanced level for current and aspiring sport and exercise nutritionists. If you're a sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach, you've already got your degrees in things like sports science, strength conditioning, nutrition, dietetics, and so on. This program will help you specialize in sport and exercise nutrition, widely recognized, and many of our graduates are now working in elite sport and are very successful in private practice from the gym to bespoke performance nutrition practices around the world. You can also learn about our software, SEMPRO, designed entirely to support sport and exercise nutritionists and sports nutrition coaches in their work with individuals, with teams, getting the absolute best that they can out of their, their athletes and their clients whilst minimizing administration, you know, all the stuff that it takes to organize and control your clients, behavior change, communication tools, nutrition periodization tools, all sorts of stuff. We keep upgrading the software, so please also check that out at www.theiopn.com. So anyway, that is all I wanted to say. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mark Harris. So hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And today it's great to invite back Dr. Mark Harris. Now, Mark, we know each other in a variety of capacities. You, of course, have been on this podcast before talking about not an unrelated topic that we're going to get into 
today, but of amongst your academic and uh, research career, you're also one of our senior tutors on our IOPN diploma program. So it's always an honor to have somebody like yourself on my team and, and have these kinds of, of conversations. It's just such a privilege to, to have that on, uh, on the team, so to speak. So Mark, for those that haven't necessarily managed to catch up with your last podcast yet, which I will link to, why don't you just give us a quick update? Because things are constantly evolving with you. So even I, even I need to be uh, brought up to date with you, mate. Yeah, no, thanks very much, first and foremost, Lauren, for the invite to come on. Like you said, it's it's always a pleasure to be invited on these sort of podcasts. So, so I guess I guess really the last time that we spoke, I was in the process of finishing up my PhD, which focused actually on what happens within the muscle when we restrict carbohydrate in and around exercise. I think actually now I've come full circle and now I'm a a postdoc still at Liverpool, John Moores. But actually looking at what happens when we feed a lot of carbohydrate in and around exercise. So it's it's quite the polar opposite of, of the work I did during my PhD. But now our primary focus is looking at nutritional strategies to optimize carbohydrate availability in and around exercise with the ultimate goal of enhancing performance in the athletes that we work with. Awesome. Uh, And, you know, there's a couple of topics that I guess are always hot topics. And for the many years now that I've done this podcast and for the, well, I mean, you know, the whole field of sports nutrition is, uh, doesn't extend that much further than the podcast really. I mean, it's been around for a while. It's still relatively new. I, I talk about this a lot with, guest experts how uh you know sport and exercise nutrition is still pretty much the new kid on the block yes we've got some other areas sports psychology and performance analysis and so on but sport and exercise nutrition is exploding in not just its popularity amongst consumers but also amongst researchers and we only go back uh, just a handful of years and uh, there would have been half as many sports nutrition master's degrees a fraction of 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 the publications that exist out there and of course you've you and your you and your team at LJM you have pumped out huge amounts of uh, quality research uh, many of your academic colleagues of course I've had here as as guests on on the podcast this this particular area is an area that I find fascinating not just because it's hotly debated there is a polarized debate on the topic of carbohydrates principally where it's attached to the whole body composition conversation where some people believe that the consumption of carbohydrates has a, a particularly significant impact on, on body composition, which of course is completely lacking in any context whatsoever. And we've discussed that a thousand times on this podcast, but when it comes to to performance, carbohydrates are king. I don't believe there's any doubt about that, but of course, again, we can come back to a little bit of context. It does depend on what you're trying to do. And we've talked about that as it relates to carbohydrate ingestion through the diet, through supplementation, which we'll talk about a bit more today, exogenous sources of carbohydrates and the intended purpose of that, that feeding strategy or that supplement strategy, whether it's to influence impact training adaptations or performance specifically on race day, game day or, or whatever. But as always, what we need to do is dial back a bit and actually look at the evidence, look at the the science, the physiology, talk about the relevant contexts of application so that we all have enough information to understand this appropriately, accurately, robustly, so that we can apply it into practice with the confidence that said strategy, said idea, said recommendation is actually going to do what we hope it will do in the appropriate place and time and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, look, you know more about this than me, but the reason why I reached out to you was because you just published your group and and yourself came out with this new study that largely relates to the impact of exogenous carbohydrate sources, which will simplify into supplements like drinks, jellies, chews, that sort of thing. But of course, we, we can talk about food sources and various other things that can achieve similar things, which of course we will get into today. But but why why did you do this this research, Mark? I'd love to understand that first. 
For us, the, the main idea behind looking at the different forms of carbohydrate came from a lot of field-based data that we know that when endurance athletes are consuming carbohydrate in order to meet the carbohydrate requirements, they typically prefer to reach these requirements from a, a variety of different carbohydrate sources. So a, a lot of the research today is typically done using liquid forms of carbohydrate. So typical glucose, maltodextrin, fructose drinks. But like I said, we know from, from the field-based data that athletes typically like to use a, a mix and match approach where they will commonly consume combinations of all different formats in order to meet their carbohydrate fueling requirements. So really for us, it was just about understanding how these different forms of carbohydrate are actually absorbed and oxidized within the muscle and whether there are any potential differences in, in how they act within, within the body can have an impact on, on performance. And I mean, we're definitely not the, the, the first people to, to do this type of study. Asker you can drop probably over 10 years ago now looked at a number of different feeding formats. But I think one of the really nice novel aspects of this study is that we also adopted the, the mix and match approach that I've just spoke about. So actually trying to understand what happens when you combine a number of these different carbohydrate sources together during an exercise bout and whether they actually act the same as when you consume these forms independent of one another. There's so much there. You, you mentioned all sorts of, of words and phrases, which of course we love in sports science, sports nutrition. And there's a couple of areas I think that we need to sort of define a bit and unpack a little bit, because I think it'll make it easier for this discussion to filter across, well, filter across between us, but also to to the audience so they can get what we what we hope they do out of this conversation. So you're talking about fuel, and we know from, even if the only thing you've done is listen to this podcast, you will have heard people talk about fuel and substrates and so on. But of course, fuel isn't only carbohydrate. There are different types of fuel. And of course, there are different levels of intensity, different types of exercise, which I guess brings us to the sort of the, the, the type, the timing, the duration of both the exercise, but also the feeding strategy. I mean, this gets pretty complicated, Mark, and that's barely the tip of the iceberg. Perhaps we could go back to some basics here. If you could help us understand why we need to separate some of those things first before we start thinking about how all this stuff comes together, as you've pointed out in these novel strategies. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lauren. And I think, you know, it always comes back to your favorite word of contact, right? And I think, you know, first and foremost, before we're able to make any sort of recommendations to, to our athletes, it's about actually understanding the physiological demands of whether it be the, the training that the athlete's performing or actually the demands of, of the race. That's not always possible because races are dependent on a number of different factors. But it's about trying to understand actually what are the physiological and, and metabolic demands of the type of exercise that we are performing. And really, until we have a good understanding of that, it's actually quite difficult to provide any bespoke fueling recommendations without that sort of information. So you're 100% right. I think there's more and more information now on the metabolic and the, the physiological demands of, of various sessions, of various different types of exercise and of various different intensities and durations. So I think first and foremost, it's about understanding them demands. And then once we have that information, we can then go on to provide some really specific nutritional recommendations to our athletes. Yeah. I mean, in our previous podcast that we did, we focused on what is now, I, I, I hate to call it a catchphrase, but it is a good one, which is fuel for the work required. And that alone makes you think about, well, hang on, what fuel, what work, and how much is actually is required? And in who, anyway? Are we talking about sort of 12-year-old enthusiastic kids and thinking about my own boys chasing around the house, you know, there's fueling involved in that process all the way up to when they grow up and become elite university athletes, which I'm sure they will do. And then fast forward into professional adult careers, potentially, you know, as uh, world-class Olympians, no pressure on my children, obviously, but 
but there's a lot of different scenarios there and of course for for one group of people you know you, you just just eating right quotes unquote throughout the day would would suffice you don't need any specific strategies timing doesn't really make much difference for them whereas bring this to for example one of the people you focused on in this new study elite cyclists and we'll we'll unpack what that word elite means as well shortly where it absolutely can make a game changing difference or a race changing difference perhaps you could just explore that in a bit more detail the, the helping us understand the way the engine if you like uses fuel and stores fuel and the variety of of usage and storage mechanisms that are involved just a quick gloss over i think would help yeah for sure, for sure you're right and when we speak about the the recreational athlete or just people who are typically exercisers probably your primary concern is just to meet the day-to-day fuel requirements and as you said the specifics of that may not be of of great importance but i think when you get up to you know, even if in the amateur athletes all the way up to, to the elite, the specific scenarios whereby the type and the timing of fuel intake and also the amount of fuel intake, of course, is, is our primary concern to them. I think that from what we know, you mentioned storage mechanisms of carbohydrate. What we know is that elite athletes in particular are very good at storing muscle glycogen. So they have a higher capacity to store more carbohydrate but the really cool thing about the elite athlete as well is that actually the ability to use other fuel sources is a lot greater than than your typical amateur recreational athlete so even though the elites can actually store more of that carbohydrate their actual relative usage of that carbohydrate is also reduced so when you think of it that way it actually allows them to get through a lot more work compared with the the recreational or the amateur athlete but nonetheless there is there is specific scenarios whereby the glycogen capacity of the muscle is is still very limited even in in the elite endurance athletes and based on that information we know that additional feeding of carbohydrate during the exercise bout itself is important to not only improve well or not only to prolong that endurance performance but and also to actually improve the the performance of that event as well. Yeah, and I think that that's important. And well, we have had conversations, you and me, and I've had it with many other people about how strategic manipulation, uh, i.e., feeding or restriction of, of carbohydrates, can result in either positive or negative adaptations on training adaptations, of course, on performance. You know the, the the even the link to, to 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 the whole lactate issue with carbohydrate being involved in that. I, you know, there's all sorts of stuff going on, and of course, there's those that are trying to go down the uh, you know the restriction of of energy generally, and and which macronutrient do you choose to restrict, and are you an endurance athlete? You know, are we trying to improve? mitochondrial biogenesis we, do we want to become more efficient are we trying to train low train high so these are all previous conversations that we have but i think fast forwarding to this very concept of feeding strategies as a strategy and the usage of novel sources i.e food or manufactured foods or supplements as we call them in very specific scenarios is the area that that i think this this particular Research in this particular conversation is really what we're going to be focusing on, just so that everyone's particularly clear about what angle we're having here. And of course, we can look at we can look at the strategies and we can look at supplements as tools in the toolbox. Another phrase I like to use. Why, Mark, do we want to have different tools in our toolbox for for this sort of thing? What what you know? Why why didn't you just look at drinks, for example? Why did you look at a mixture of different strategies there, feeding forms? It's a great point. And I mean, as I, as I mentioned briefly before, I think the the main reason for this is because this is typically what we see endurance athletes do. And so we don't typically see that these athletes are relying on one particular source, for example, drinks, as you just mentioned. They do self-select a variety of different feeding formats in order to, to meet these demands. And, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. If, if you're riding on your bike for for three to five hours 
then the last thing that you want to be doing is consuming exactly the same thing across that across that prolonged period of time. So I think for for a lot of these athletes, these practices that they already habitually perform actually just comes from their own particular preference. Some athletes might have a preference for drinks. Some might have a preference for, for solid foods, as you mentioned. And then other athletes, a lot of them that we see like to adopt this mix and match approach where they have a variety of different sources. I think just purely to, to avoid any sort of boredom and, and fatigue of that particular thing. And, you know, the important thing to, to remember is that the, the primary objective here is to maintain the ability to keep ingesting large quantities of carbohydrate. And if actually the, the form of carbohydrate that you're consuming is having a negative impact on that, whereby you've taken nine gels across three hours, probably the last thing that you want to do is, is to have another gel, right? So I think the ability to be able to mix and match across these different formats is something that these athletes really benefit from in order to able to maintain the ability to keep consuming carbohydrate. Absolutely. Now, just because people take these things does not mean that they need them though, does it, Mark? So shall we shall we look at that first? Because obviously that, you know, you, you if you go I, I remember when I used to live in London and I was riding around Regent's Park, for example, or Richmond Park, and you got all your sort of amateur triathletes, people training for their five Ks and ten Ks and so on, you'd see people just pumping themselves with energy drinks, a bit like a <laughs> like a sort of a you know old-fashioned american uh cowboy movie you'd see them with like bullet belts just stuffed full of <laughs> of gels you know up the arm across the chest taped all over the handlebars and and bikes is just covered in in these supplements and uh, you know and you a casual look at the the rider and obviously these aren't elites for the most part could lose a few pounds themselves you know at what point do we go from not needing it to needing it mark yeah, no, it's a great point. And it, it really comes back to, like we said before, trying to understand the, the physiological and the metabolic demands of the session that we're performing. So, I mean, I think if you look at the ACSM guidelines, anything under 60 minutes, you, you probably don't really need any sort of form of additional carbohydrate. Like I said before, we are able to obviously store carbohydrate within both the liver and the muscle. And them stores, albeit, the fact that they are limited, they do provide sufficient energy for quite short periods of, of exercise up to 60 minutes. Anything above 60 minutes to around about two, two and a half hours, the, the guidelines suggest between 30 and 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And then I guess anything above two and a half hours onwards, the guidelines recommend 90 grams an hour or 60 to 90 grams an hour all the way up to probably the upper limit of recommendations, which is around about 120 grams, which is what we actually studied in the present study. And to differentiate enthusiastic cyclist, for example, from a pretty serious, but nonetheless amateur triathlete to a world-class professional rider or world-class Olympic triathlete, for example, what, what sort of variations are likely to exist there in terms of need? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point. Like, like we said before, obviously elite athletes have a greater ability to, to store glycogen. So you'd argue that they could, I guess, go longer without any exogenous forms of carbohydrate intake. But I actually think between the standard of, of athlete, if you like, it more boils down to them than metabolic demands because if, if someone's exercising at an intensity that requires you know, a certain amount of carbohydrate, regardless, obviously for the elite, that would be, that would occur at a much higher running speed or a much greater power output. But I think relative to the individual's ability, it, it's it's really just about understanding them metabolic requirements. Even if you've got a higher standard athlete, but they're exercising at a really low intensity, then obviously the requirements for carbohydrate will will still be low regardless of the fact of whether they are elite or, or not. Yeah, so you, if your efforts are ambitious in terms of how long you're 
your ride or your run, for example, is going to be, then you get an increasing sort of argument in the direction of these things have a value. And I guess that's what we're trying to arrive at here is one's interpretation of what that value is, how you manage the expectations of the value that you derive from these supplementations. And then of course, well, which ones do you take anyway? And then how do you maximize the return on your investment in these products? Because you have to buy them, of course, you know, one way, one way or the other. I know we want to get a lot into the applied side of this. Ultimately, it's how can you take advantage of of these products? But how, you know, you did this study. There are other studies that have contributed to this body of knowledge on the need for carbohydrate supplementation, exogenous carbohydrate intake in various forms. But not all those studies have been done the same way, varying levels well i mean you you know we've talked about this so many times about quantity versus quality in the sports science realm as it comes to scientific publications but there's a big difference in how some studies are done and uh, you guys at lgmu have some incredible facilities for your research perhaps you could just give us a quick overview behind the study that you did so that we can understand just how it is you arrived at the findings and conclusions that you came from that came from that in my point of view, I think what's what's really cool about the study, and it's it's the first time that actually this has been done across multiple different feeding formats, is that we're really lucky with our, our funders at Science and Sport that we have a great MPD technology team, which actually allow us to create these products for particularly for scientific research. I think a lot of other you know, research trials that, that study these different things actually just use either, you know, homemade kind of recipes or off-the-shelf recipes, if you like. But I think what we're really lucky to have is a, a great technology team, which actually allowed us to incorporate the stable isotopes that we use to measure the oxidation of the ingested carbohydrate into each and every one of these feeding formats. And that's, that's the first time this has actually been done across, it's been done in, in drinks multiple times before for, you know, for over 20 years, but actually incorporating these stable isotopes into the, the gel and the jelly chew format is something that I think is, is really novel in this study. And it actually allows us to, to accurately quantify the oxidation of these formats without relying on what most people use is the the natural enrichment of various off the shelf products. So I think it's it's really cool that we're able to to do that in this study. And like I said, it's the first time that this has actually been done across multiple feeding formats within the same study. So Mark, why look? You're a busy man. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Why make your life that much more challenging by throwing all this extra stuff in? Looking at you know isotopes, looking at uh, blood sampling a whole range of metabolic testing protocols finding decent you know athletes that sort of thing i mean why you know why not just come up with a much simpler study arrive at those conclusions a lot more easily and boom here's here's your outcomes i mean why go to that level why why is it important Mark? yeah it's a good question it definitely would have saved me a lot of sleepless nights doing <laughs> doing something a little bit different but you know i think i think for us it's it's all about research quality and it's about arriving at findings that you can you can truly trust and you can truly believe in. So I think, you know, for us, it's about understanding the whole picture. I think without some of these techniques that we that we use or some of the different sampling methods that we use, it's it's almost like you get half of the answer. So I think once you incorporate different methodologies and, and different techniques. It allows you to just gain a real insight into actually, like I mentioned before, the, the metabolic and the physiological demands of these types of sessions and actually really just understand specifically in, in this scenario when we're looking at the oxidation of the ingested carbohydrate. I don't think it's really enough to just look at, you know, whole body substrate where we're saying, you know, carbohydrate, whole body carbohydrate oxidation might change across formats. It's really important to actually 
label these substrates with the traces in order to actually specifically understand how much of that ingested carbohydrate is being oxidized. So, so yeah, I think it's just about research quality and, and getting the most out of a study that you can do really, Lauren. Yeah. And that's great. And I'm, I, you know, I think it's awesome. You guys are doing that. You know, if I change hats to being a practitioner working with many elite athletes over the years, not so much cyclists, but you know, football being a big area, I know you're going to be doing a study in, or you've just started another study in a similar vein, but with football players, you know, this stuff is, uh, this stuff's important. And I know, you know, there, there are a number of listeners who aren't sports scientists or nutritionists, but they are high level athletes who love to geek out on this stuff. And of course, this, you know, this makes a big difference to to them or to us advising them. If we're telling them to do things that's based on very loose assumptions. And the reality is, you know, it may, may not work, at least not in in the ways in which we were thinking it was going to work. And the consequence, of course, is is not achieving the level of performance at best or at worst, problems with their their health or or accidents or whatever can can occur. So this stuff really matters. And I think even for the casual consumer, where those things may not be a risk to them, they are wasting time and money, if nothing else, you know. So the sports nutrition commercial market's massive. And I guess some people would say, well, but you know, this study was funded by, as you say, science and sport. You and I know that's ridiculous because a quality study with the right scientist and published in the right journals with the appropriate level of peer review and so on is, is the, you know, is the filter that's necessary to differentiate quality from, from poor or really bad science. But again, you know, maybe you could just explain why that was important for you guys to go through that level of rigor with this. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, you hear a lot of people saying when they look at the the funding organizations for different studies that, oh, you know, that 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 data is, you know, can you can you trust it and so on and so forth. And you know, a lot of researchers come back with the same question is uh, same answer is the fact that you know you you need the funding organizations to to be able to to do this, and and without it, these type of studies and this type of information wouldn't be possible. So I think, like you said, it, it's it's important that it goes through that rigorous process when you're designing your methodology, but also that rigorous process of, of peer review to know that when you're actually reading a, a publication and you're and you're looking at the data that it's gone through the process and mm. you can actually trust the information that that you're reading. Well, and also the information helps inform the manufacturing process by. For example, this is science and sports. So they, you know, they're investing obviously in trying to produce the best products they possibly can because it matters to them that the products actually work. Given so many elite athletes use use their products, and really, what I was saying is, it's just so so many nutritional products exist out there that really have a very weak or or none at all in terms of evidence to to support to support their use. And, you know, because one of the questions that of course will come up with, well, do I really, you know, why would I take these products as opposed to consuming a banana or consuming a sandwich, Mark? You know, why, why, why jump that, that bridge, the gap that exists between foods that we will generally find in our fridges, in our larders, in a normal supermarket, as opposed to these very much designed products that are existing there. What's your view on that? Yeah, I think I think it really comes down to, you know, the specific scenario that that you're working with. For sure, there's a number of different foods or whole foods that are ready available for people when perhaps they're going out on a really easy training ride or a really easy recovery ride whereby they can pick up a variety of these different whole foods and they can take them on the bike with them. And, you know, there's, there's probably no issues with, with people doing that. I think the scenario in which you need these real bespoke, you know, supplements, if you like, is where it's probably primarily in racing scenarios whereby you need to know that everything that you are putting in your body is going to work exactly how you want it to work. And there's a lot of differences between being on an easy recovery ride compared to, you know, when you're at kind of 
top end speeds you're really pushing there's a lot of other factors that come into racing you know things like anxiety that can obviously impact our our gastrointestinal system so i think what what's really nice about this study is the fact that like you mentioned before these are actually products that are now commercially available and the reason why science and sport was so invested in this is to actually have real research backing behind products that you know you can actually pick up off the shelf and there's real strong evidence behind them that you know exactly how they are going to work and how it exactly how they'll be oxidized within the muscle so I think for a consumer it's really nice to just have that peace of mind that actually these products have been extensively researched and here's the data on this and you can go and make your your own mind up whether this fits into your nutritional strategy or not yeah yeah and look i think you know look we've already mentioned the evidence is extremely robust when it comes to showing the value of of carbohydrate in relevant areas of performance particularly where winning races etc are going to matter then it is something you're going to want to take seriously i appreciate if we're looking at things like ultra endurance, multi-stage ultra endurance events, there might be different approaches to that, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. But for things like cycling and long distance running and 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 so on, you know, when you look at the elite athletes or elite amateur athletes, they're moving pretty fast. So that mixture of fuel that's being used is, you know, is very much dependent on the access to to carbohydrates. That's what I wanted to bring us to. You, you know, use words like endogenous and exogenous carbohydrate oxidation and you've you've given us an idea about the value of that particularly about exogenous carbohydrate oxidation and that brings us to these novel products and and so on and of course there are many choices some of which will come down to preference taste practicality all those things that we can argue in favor of taking these these products but but you know what did you find in your research as it relates to the different you know types of 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 drinks chews etc that you looked at and and what did you learn from that research so the the main outcome variable that we measured across our study was like we've mentioned before the oxidation of the ingested carbohydrate so that's essentially how much of the ingested carbohydrate was actually being oxidized within the muscle to to fuel the exercise if you like and what we're seeing is that across each of the different feeding formats, and even when you co-ingest all of these different feeding formats together, they're all oxidized at pretty much the, the same rate. So I think that sends a really nice message to all of the endurance athletes out there. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of these guys are already following this you know, mix and match approach whereby they co-ingest in different forms of carbohydrate. So this really just supports the habitual behavior, what they're already doing on the bike to tell them that regardless of the, the format, as long as you meet your carbohydrate fueling requirements, whether it's on the bike or during the run or whatever it is, you can pretty much choose the feeding format that matches your preference, matches the race conditions, Whatever it may be, it just gives you a little bit more freedom in order to pick your fueling requirement based on, like we mentioned before, the intensity and the duration of the exercise being performed. So thanks for that. And look, when we look at this from the lens of a researcher, from the perspective of metabolism, you know, it's a biochemistry conversation that we could be having and have had. You know, we are talking about human beings in the real world. And yes, we've talked about practicality being an issue. You know, one issue that has reared its its ugly head over the years, of course, is this whole area of gastrointestinal discomfort, which can really be a real problem for I mean, it's more than just a very small number of people. I mean, it is a it is an issue that that occurs a lot, which is an argument for these products and also the limits to the amount of of this fuel that you can essentially consume, which causes a number of problems in itself. Maybe you could just quickly talk talk about that, particularly from a gastrointestinal discomfort perspective. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's a lot of 
you know, field-based data out there now that shows that gastrointestinal problems can be a real issue during prolonged endurance events. And I think when we speak about these, you know, these different ranges of carbohydrate requirements during exercise itself, I think it's really about finding a balance between or maximizing the oxidation of ingested carbohydrate while also minimizing the amount of gastrointestinal distress that that we suffer from. So it's definitely a real balancing act and definitely something that requires practice to kind of understand where an athlete's optimal carbohydrate intake requirements are. But I think one of the main issues with, with some different carbohydrate products or different carbohydrate formats in different conditions is that you know, if you're not able to oxidize a lot of the carbohydrate that you're being ingested, there's probably one major site where that remaining carbohydrate is is sitting, and and that's within within the intestine predominantly. And if you think about it, that's the main major cause of this gastrointestinal distress because if you actually can't absorb that carbohydrate through the intestine you know, into the into the liver, into the circulation, and ultimately into the muscle to be oxidized, then any of that remaining residual carbohydrate just sits in the gastrointestinal system. And, you know, over multiple hours of exercise, that's just going to build and build and build. And ultimately, that might be the difference between you actually just finishing the race or not. So I think it's definitely a real important consideration. There's no point you know, consuming X amount of carbohydrate, if it's going to cause you a lot of gastrointestinal distress, it's about really trying to find that balance of how much can I consume whilst minimizing any sort of gastrointestinal distress. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's some very interesting research that goes into this that relates to different types of athletes. For example, if you're into foot racing, for example, there are additional impacts on the gut potentially from the sheer impact involved in in running relative to the weight bearing you know advantage if you like in that regard for being on a, on a bike which all factors in of course you know this all gets rather gets rather complex which is why one has to consider the individual needs and preferences and 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 so on but what about this idea that in conversation scientific conversations you tend to reduce things to terms like carbohydrates but there are different kinds of carbohydrates and obviously different sources of carbohydrates. Why, you know, why why does it matter that we do also factor in the types and sources of carbohydrates that are found in these products? What are your what are your thoughts and findings on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And in, in terms of in terms of carbohydrate, you're up, uh, in terms of type of carbohydrate, you're absolutely right. The type of carbohydrate that we consume, you know, can have a huge effect on the amount of that carbohydrate we can actually absorb. So the the main reason for this is that there's a number or there's two main types of, of carbohydrate transporter within the intestine. And these transporters actually become saturated at different quantities of ingestion. So for example, the, the glucose transporter becomes saturated in and around 60 grams an hour. So if, for example, if you put a lot more glucose in than 60 grams an hour you still won't oxidize any more of that additional carbohydrate that you've put in if you like and to go back to the to the point i've just mentioned if that continually builds up and sits within the intestine over multiple hours it's pretty much likely that you're going to suffer with some sort of gastrointestinal distress so what you can do in order to, to circumvent that is use a, a, a different type of or co-ingest a different type of carbohydrate with that glucose. Typically, that is fructose, which uses a different transporter protein. And that actually allows you to ingest a lot more carbohydrate than the, the 60 grams of glucose that you can consume. So in, in this particular study, we used a combination of either maltodextrin or glucose, which is obviously such or used by one transporter. And then the additional carbohydrate came from fructose, which allows us to take advantage of the other transporter. 
and actually push that rate of ingestion all the way up to 120 grams an hour. So this metabolic machinery that revolves around fuel or substrate utilization, processing, if you like, that sort of thing, you know, do we all start off with the same kit, so to speak? You know, does that require training like our muscles need training, you know, muscle fibers and so on? You know, we've had these conversations with yourself and other experts about the, the sort of the role of, of training the gut, for example, uh, as it relates to gastrointestinal discomfort. We know that different types and timing and duration of training, you know, will have different impacts on training adaptations and so on. But what about on these transporter mechanisms and, and our ability to actually take up and draw down on these fuel supplies what about that side of things yeah i think i think the whole concept of, of training the gut is is really quite a hot concept at the minute and you know it, it makes absolute sense if you if you expose these transporter proteins to the substrate that they carry over a long period of time then it then it of course it makes sense that you're going to upregulate the amount of of these proteins that that you have we, we don't actually have real direct evidence because obviously taking tissue samples from along the gastrointestinal system comes with comes with its own problems but of course it, it makes absolute sense that that would occur we do have some i guess indirect evidence of that that shows that i think some work from greg cox and, and Ashley you can drop that was it's probably over 10 years old now that shows that daily training or consuming carbohydrate during every single training session actually increases our ability to oxidize a set amount of carbohydrate, which, which is really cool, right? Because if we can increase our efficiency to oxidize ingested carbohydrate, not only does that give us more available substrate during exercise itself, but it actually also reduces the amount of residual carbohydrate that is that is sat within the gut and I guess as a as a secondary benefit potentially will also reduce any gastrointestinal symptoms and over the past I think five years there's been some cool data to show that what they call repetitive gut challenges so repeatedly challenging the gut with high amounts of, of carbohydrate does actually improve some of these gastrointestinal symptoms that we see during exercise so, so I think absolutely it, it makes sense to start thinking about how we can begin to, to train the gut. And also I think it just makes sense from a, a practical point of view just to be able to practice consuming carbohydrate and, and not only carbohydrate but fluids, also the, the process of, of drinking during exercise when we've obviously got high ventilatory rates and things like that. I think when taken together, it, it, it makes absolute sense. Yeah, of course, you can package these things with caffeine, with electrolytes, like you said, liquid water, that sort of thing. But again, we come back to this choice that people have, and there's nothing like giving people too much choice to induce huge amounts of anxiety, particularly in elite athletes who just want to know the best answer. How do I win that race? Just tell me what to do, Mark. So you've got drinks you've got gels you've got jellies you've mentioned that one way or the other they're all gonna provide the support that the ingester is requiring yes you've got individual taste and so on but what about this co-ingestion approach idea or or is that just the same it's like whatever you like doing the most is that how that works pretty much yeah so the the co-ingestion approach that we used was essentially during the three hours of exercise Subjects will consume a combination of or an equal combination of carbohydrate from the drink, from the gel, and from the from the jelly dew. So 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour would come from each of the individual sources, given a total of 120 grams per hour. So that was really just to show that okay, when we when we test these formats. I guess, independently of, of one another, they are all oxygen similarly. But what happens when we follow the, the habitual feed and practices of these athletes and we almost throw them all together, if you like, and they all mix within the stomach? Is there any sort of issues there that are caused by, by that strategy? And again, from, from the data that we've that we've got, you can see that 
not only are they oxidized at you know very similar rates to to all the formats independently, but again we we report very very trivial, if not any, gastrointestinal symptoms from that approach too. Now, not all products are created the same. Obviously, I say obviously, not everyone realizes that they will find themselves presented with products that essentially look like gels, look like jelly chews, look like drinks, but they do come in slightly different ratios in terms of the formulation of the basic ingredients. What's What are the sorts of things that you know, you need to be looking for what does the evidence tell us is the, you know, seems to be the right combination of, of, of products? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of independent study on the different ratios of carbohydrate. The general consensus seems to be that a ratio of 1 to 0. 0.8 of maltodextrin or glucose to fructose is pretty much the optimal ratio in terms of being able to oxidize the most of the ingested carbohydrate. So I think the, the studies or the older studies that have been done typically used a, a two to one ratio. So typically that would be, for example, 60 grams of glucose and half of the amount of, of fructose so 30 grams of, of fructose. The, the more recent evidence, like I said, seems to be that when you ingest it ratios closer to, to unity, where the maltodextrin and fructose are, are very similar, at least when you're ingesting high quantities at or above 90 grams an hour, the optimal ratio seems to be one to around about 0.8. So, you know, we have a number there, which is the rate of at or above 90 grams per hour, which has been shown to uh, allow for higher rates of, of oxidation during exercise. But how about this this idea of more is better? Is that the case? How should individuals be looking at this advice? Yeah, I mean, I think you see that with any sort of nutritional strategy or supplement, don't you? People, I guess the message is sometimes more is more is better, but that's definitely not the case. I mean, like I said before, it's it's definitely a balancing act between how much can I maximally oxidize against what's the maximal dose I can consume without reporting any gastrointestinal symptoms? As far as I'm aware, the maximal oxidation rates have come from the ingestion of 2.4 grams of carbohydrate per minute. So I think that works out about 144 grams per hour, which is obviously a hell of a lot. That seems to be, well, that's that's probably the highest oxidation rates that we've seen in the literature. And there's, there's, there's definitely becomes a saturation point whereby the, the rate limiting step seems to be the absorption through the intestine. But I think there must also be a point where there's a limitation at the level of the muscle, whereby we can actually not take any further carbohydrate up from the circulation. And that seems to be around about that value that I've just said. I think around about the 120 to 140 grams an hour. So I think we're probably looking at a ceiling for intake or ingestion rates in and around 120 grams an hour, there or thereabouts. Yeah, and of course, look, a lot of this is going to come down to uh, to practice with it. Try it. You know, it's a proven strategy. It's not going to work for everyone on the basis of not everyone actually needs to be doing this, but a lot of people will benefit from it as this research and other research has clearly pointed out. If we just move to some practical aspects here, you know, we, we're using terms like feeding strategies, 90 to 120 grams per hour, you know, blah, 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 blah. Maybe you could just illustrate some examples. I mean, obviously, the context is more endurance racing type events mm. that you know that you're more focused on here. I mean, what are the areas of application you see this having particular value, and what is the the range that you know we've used terms like athlete and elite and so on? I know we've briefly touched on this, but it would be good as we draw this conversation to a conclusion you know it'd be good to just quickly talk about that yeah i mean i think if we go back 
to some of the ACSM guidelines, like I said before, typically endurance events at or above two and a half hours is, is where you see these recommendations of 90 grams and above, 90 grams an hour and above. So I think in terms of exercise duration, it, in it somewhere in and around that ballpark, again, when you look at exercise intensity, it's important that it's of sufficient intensity to actually require this amount of carbohydrate. I think if you are an athlete or or an exerciser who is is running or cycling at a relatively low intensity, your overall, not only energy requirements, but your overall carbohydrate requirements might not actually be that high. You know, there's no point feeding two grams of carbohydrate a minute if you're only oxidizing, you know, at levels below that, there's it's it's just going to be, you know, a waste of a waste of time and money for yourself. So, you know, it, it's it's it has to be an intensity that's of sufficient intensity to require this amount of carbohydrate. But I think, like we touched on before, the level of athlete is, I guess, less of a influencing factor in this because as long as it is of sufficient intensity and duration for that specific individual then these requirements will will pretty much apply across the whole spectrum of athlete yeah no brilliant yeah i mean look you know look i've mentioned before we've we've done a podcast before about this idea of fueling for the work required. Uh, I think it's necessary to re-listen to that podcast. I've had similar conversations, of course, with James Morton. Very first ever podcast we touched upon this, of course, years ago now, which James has done a lot of work in that, obviously, and Trent Stellingworth and so on. We talked a lot of the applied aspects of this. But, you know, it's really interesting as sport and exercise nutrition continues to grow and develop in terms of the research that, that adds to the body of knowledge and ultimately informs the decisions we make as practitioners or researchers and so on. Obviously that filters down to consumers, which is why this sort of conversation has its value across all of those stakeholders is because there are a lot of people buying stuff they don't need and or aren't using, aren't using properly. And it's like tools generally, isn't it? They, uh, in the right hands, they can be of great value in the wrong hands. They can cause a lot of damage. But look, listen, Mark, I mean, it's been awesome to have this conversation with you Everyone obviously should read the study. And uh, just quickly, uh, you know, future directions in this area. I mentioned you, you're off air in particular, but you're just broken ground on another study uh, with football players, I think. Uh, you know, where, where, where's all this leading towards, you think? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, like I mentioned at the start, our main focus of research within our group is to look at maximizing the availability of, of carbohydrate in and around exercise and whether that be endurance exercise or, or team sport exercise, I think there's a lot of different applications for this. I think also moving forward, the field can definitely learn a lot more from the whole topic of, of training the gut. I think that there's a lot of work to be done in that area to actually understand what is happening. How can we do this? You know, what's the best strategy to do this and actually potentially even the time course of these adaptations, how long do we actually need to to train the gut? Because that's obviously got implications for people's preparation for these different type of events. So hopefully there's a lot more work to come from us and hopefully it won't be too too long in the making. You're not going to be bored for a very long <laughs> time, I, I can tell. <laughs> but no, it's, you know, in all seriousness, it's, it's, it is fascinating whether you're a practitioner, researcher or a consumer, this information, there's just no, no question, you know, the value that sport and exercise, nutrition, diet, feeding strategies, et cetera, et cetera, can have. And uh, we're going to see more and more, obviously, ideas and, and strategies and tools and so on coming out in the future. And, you know, thank you for your your contributions to the research on that side, you and your colleagues. If people want to uh, to follow your your work as a researcher, et cetera, what's the best way of people following you, Mark? Yeah, so people can follow me on, on ResearchGate and they can see all our updated work on there. I have to confess, I'm not the biggest user on, on social media, but any any studies that we do publish or any other work that we have on there, you can also find on my Twitter page as well. 
Well, that's because you're too busy, Mark. That's why. Good man. Yeah, and of course, also our students are very lucky to learn from you as one of our awesome tutors on our tutoring team at the IOPN. So thanks for that too, Mark. Well, look, thank you for your time. That's it. We've had a we've had a great conversation, and I uh, guess I'll I'll be seeing you in a in a team meeting on another occasion. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much for having me, Lauren. Great stuff. Thank you.